Welcome back to the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and what matters. Sentientism answers those two deep questions by committing to evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I talk to Michael Humer. Mike is a professor of philosophy at the University of Colorado. He's the author of more than 70 academic articles in epistemology, ethics, metaethics, metaphysics, and political philosophy, as well as eight amazing books that, in his own words, you should immediately buy right now, including Skepticism and the Veil of Perception, Ethical Intuitionism, The Problem of Political Authority, Approaching Infinity, Paradox Lost, and Dialogues on Ethical Vegetarianism. He blogs at fakenews.net, F-A-K-E-N-O-U-S.net. I'd love to know what you think of this episode and the 84 others so far. Don't forget to dip into that back catalogue if you've just found us. Every person who reviews, rates, or shares our podcast with a friend or 10 helps us nudge more people towards more compassionate, rational thinking. You can find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info, where you can sign up for email updates, or just search for sentientism on your favorite social media platform. You'll be made welcome in all of our global online communities. They're open to anyone interested in these ideas, not just sentientists. Thanks as ever for listening. Good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Yeah, great. Thanks. Great. Um, it's a pleasure to have you join this series of sentientist conversations. Thanks for making the time. And we've talked briefly, but I guess the idea behind this podcast is to focus on what I think of as the two deepest and probably most important philosophical questions. What's real? You know, how should we believe and how should we understand the universe we're in? Uh, and what matters and who matters morally, both in terms of, you know, what grounding there might be for our ethics, but critically, you know, who matters in terms of our moral scope. And I have a frustration with much of the world of philosophy as I look at it from the outside as an amateur, because it feels to me like many philosophers have either sort of skimmed past those fundamental questions or, and you know, gone on some more abstruse stuff. Um, whereas your work, from my understanding of it, has hit those questions absolutely head on. So, um, yeah, it's great to have the chance to talk to you and understand your personal journey and where you are now on these topics. Yeah, yeah it's, it's great to be here. Cool. Um, but before we go on to those uh, two sort of deep questions, and I do feel a bit embarrassed asking them of um, a professional philosopher, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, before we go on to those, those sort of basic questions, how would you best introduce your uh, self and your work for people who don't know you? Um, so I'm a professor of philosophy at the University of Colorado. I've been there for like a couple of decades. Uh, I've written uh, eight books, which you can find on Amazon, and uh, you should immediately buy them. Yeah, and, all of them. Uh, all of them. <laughs> yeah. I will include. I will put the links in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, and um, you know, I've written like uh, 70 academic articles in ethics, epistemology, a small amount of metaphysics, and um, some political philosophy. Yeah, what else? I have a, I have a pl- popular blog called Fake Noose, F-A-K-E-N-O-U-S. And um, yeah, you can, you know, you can visit my webpage and my blog. Great. Go and sign up. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so let's go on to those two uh, deep questions. The first one being, what's real? And for many of my guests, that's a story about, uh, I guess, originally whether they grew up in a family and a society that was maybe more supernatural in its ways of thinking, religious, spiritual, and so on, or one that was more naturalistic, agnostic, atheistic, scientifically minded, um, you know, even through their childhood, and how that side of their philosophy, the epistemology, and so on has changed over time, if it has. So you can wind the clock back as far as you like, because obviously it's something you've done plenty of deep philosophical work on 
in recent yeah. times, but it'd be good to know sort of where you came from and how you got to where you are now as well. Yeah, I guess. So, you know, I have a, I have a completely secular background. Uh, I was never religious. Um, you know, there's a, a story about when I was a young child, and I don't know how old, but it was probably like you know, maybe five or something, when um, apparently like I'm in my father's office in the waiting room because, you know, they didn't have a babysitter or whatever. So they left me in the waiting room. Yeah. And like, uh, I'm reading this book of Bible stories, which uh, they just, you know, had left on the table. And some um, patient comes in and sees me reading the Bible stories and thinks, oh, that's so nice. The kid is uh, learning about the Bible, whatever, <laughs> you know, and then and then I go up to that lady and I say, this is stupid. <laughs> I ask people where God came from and they said he created himself. That's stupid. I don't believe in God. <laughs> and then I sat back down and kept reading. So, okay, so you so out of all of my 84 guests so far, I think you might have the cleanest and earliest commitment to the sort of maybe an extreme agnostic or an atheist stance that I've heard so far. So <laughs> yeah. I mean I, so I used to call myself an atheist, now I call myself an agnostic. So I don't know if there's a creator of the universe. Um I'm not agnostic about the major religions, like I think all the major religions are false. Uh, you know, they, they just strike me as in, incredibly implausible. And also like the things, the things that occur in the Bible and the other um, famous religious texts are just so obviously the sort of thing that a primitive human would write and obviously not the sort of thing that a superhuman being would write, <laughs> you know, like totally obsessed with sex, totally obsessed with like different tribes of humans and like, which is their preferred tribe or something. You know, if I created a universe containing like, you know, 100 billion galaxies and all this stuff and that, you know, and 14 billion years had passed since I did that, I don't think I would be obsessed with this particular tribe of humans. Yeah. And like who was having sex with whom and whatever. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. So. It's a strange perspective to take for a supernatural, perfect, all-seeing, all-knowing being, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And I think if you do a psychological analysis of the deities that are described in most of the holy books i think you come up with some, some pretty disturbing uh diagnoses as well in terms of you know paranoia vindictiveness narcissism <laughs> so yeah. yeah 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 i mean like that yeah you know like god in traditional religions doesn't even seem like a decent person let alone the greatest possible like he seems like a horrible monster <laughs> like you know like if he was a human we would have to lock him in jail for yeah. life you know, <laughs> seems that way. Seems that way. And it's and with many of my guests, there's been a, there's been I guess two driving factors as they've moved away from a religious world. You, you never had one, but you clearly engaged with it and sort of rejected it at the age of five. And there's been a for some people it is, and for me it was a mix. For me it was partly you know evidence, reason, the facts don't stack up. It's just implausible. You know, I see almost as much evidence in most of the religious books as I might do in the Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter. Um, but there was also, and again, you've hinted at it already, a sort of ethics and morality angle where you're going, okay, this is being put forward as really a perfect moral system, but there are many things within it that even from my sort of intuitive or simple-minded human perspective <laughs> seem deeply immoral. So, you know, there's something going wrong there. So was it a mix of both of those things that when you engaged with it, you were sort of pushed away or more one than the other or 
Yeah, I mean, you know, like, I mean, I was never really like, I was never inclined towards religion to begin with. So like, it's hard to say, you know, yeah. if anything pushed me away, <laughs> but, um, you know, so like somewhat later, like, you know, around college, I started to find some of the, um, you know, scary things that are in the Bible. I now have a page on my website called scary Bible quotes, yeah. which, um, at least at one time when I looked, um, several years ago, it was the top non-inspirational Bible quotes page. <laughs> like when I did a Google search, right? Because like, if you search on Bible quotes, like, you know, most of them are inspirational Bible quotes. But yeah, anyway, yeah. Um, That's quite an honor yeah, to have that, have that ranking. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I didn't know, I didn't know all the stuff that was in the Bible because I didn't go to Sunday school or whatever. But um, then I started seeing some of the stuff and, you know, there's like stuff about um, how the Israelites are supposed to treat the people who are living in the promised land. Um, and they're just like, you know, completely destroy them, kill the men, women, and children. Let's just like, you know, destroy everything that's alive. Not, yeah. not even, you know, not even just the people, just like everything alive, just destroy. <laughs> um, yeah. And then, you know, these passages about like, um, when you have to stone people to death, like you have to stone the gay people to death and like somebody commits adultery, capital crime, stone them to death. It's just like all of this, there's all this stoning people to death. <laughs> if you disrespect your parents, you know. So, yeah, um, yeah, pretty pretty brutal, and it's not just the Old Testament either, is it? So, yeah, I mean, the, yeah, the Old Testament is um, much worse. Like, yeah. actually, I mean, the New Testament seems pretty inconsistent, right? If you look at the Sermon on the Mount, it just seems like he's directly contradicting the Old Testament, and like, <laughs> yeah. and almost like he thinks that he's making it okay by referring to the stuff in the Old Testament, like you've heard P. But I tell you, not pee. <laughs> like, I tell you the exact opposite. Like, okay. And anyway, um. <laughs> yeah, strange. Now, uh, it, it, we we spend quite a lot of time in this section talking about religion because it obviously is one of the central examples of, you know, this choice between maybe a naturalistic way of believing or a supernatural way of believing. Although even that has some nuances because you know there are many religious people who reject naturalism. They say, look, I just have faith. I don't need the evidence. The evidence is almost irrelevant for me. But there are many religious people who will say, oh, no, the evidence is there. And, you know, it is a naturalistic commitment from my reading of the Bible that leads me to X. So we could, you know, we might argue with the quality of the evidence, but there's some nuances. But religion isn't the only domain where we can think about naturalism, supernaturalism and so on. Are there any other parts of your life as I guess you've grown up and developed your thinking where you've been um, tempted to other areas that are sort of maybe beyond a sort of scientific naturalistic worldview whether it's yeah. you know eastern religions or spirituality or um yeah. you know other you know, other sort of aspects yeah you know um i mean i was saying how like yeah i disbelieve all the major religions right yeah i don't just not believe them i disbelieve them but the reason why i said i was agnostic is you know that like that doesn't mean that there's not a creator yeah right? like you know human beings predictably said a lot of ridiculous stuff about the creator, but there could still be a creator. Yeah. And the, the only reason that I have for saying that is basically the fine tuning argument, yeah. uh, which I learned about early in my career. And, um, and like, and most of the responses to it, I think are just fallacies, right? They're just like, you know, just like errors in reasoning. So that's still like, holding some weight in your mind as a keeps the credence yeah, so open. I, yeah, like the only explanations I know of are that that are not fallacious or whatever confused are, you know, intelligent design and multiverse. 
And both of those are really amazing. <laughs> so like, yeah. I'm not like, you know, you might think like you hear either of these, you might think, wow, that sounds crazy. But like the main alternative is the other one. So I don't know, I don't know which one is wilder. And how and, much, because you know, what, I guess, I'm, again, I'm an amateur in these fields as well. So I'll probably even describe this wrong. But there's, there's also the, the view that almost by definition, the universe has to exist in this way for us to be here to even ask the question. So does that, you know, even, even outside of the many worlds, could we just be breathtakingly lucky to exist in this context? But yeah. if, if the universe was tuned in a different way, we wouldn't even be here to ask the question. So. Right. Yeah. By the way, you know, can we assume that the audience knows what the fine tuning argument is? Well, that's a good point. I mean, it, uh, some maybe, but others maybe not. So yeah, it might be good to anyway, like, you know, explain. Anyway, the it. very short version of it is uh, there's a bunch of stuff about the universe that if it was slightly different, life would be impossible. Like if the gravitational constant was a little bit larger, then the universe would have collapsed long before life had evolved, and you know, maybe before stars formed. And if, it, if the gravitational constant was a little bit less, then it would have expanded too quickly for stars to ever form. There's, there's just a long list of things that are like that, where if you change some parameter by a little bit in, um, you know, in the laws of physics or something, then you figure out that life would pretty much be impossible. So we're wondering, like, how we got so lucky yeah, that, yeah. that we're here, right? And so, yeah, so the candidate answers are, well, there was like an intelligent being who wanted there to be life. And, and this being would have to have control over the laws of nature. It would have to be an incredibly powerful being. And then the other explanation is maybe there are many universes, perhaps infinitely many, according to some theories, right? And yeah. then- And this, just, is, this is a reasonably mainstream view in modern physics, you know, Everetti and many worlds and, yeah. Well, yeah, not the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. Uh, so like you need something, you need like a stronger multiverse yeah, okay. version of the multiverse where the laws of physics are different in the different worlds right because like in the many yeah, worlds yeah. they all have the same laws but um in, in the interpretation of quantum mechanics um but yeah so you know you hypothesize there are different universes that have slightly different laws they have different parameters uh different values of the constants and whatever so and then there's you know just by total chance there's going to be some of them where the parameters are just right for life to occur and in those universes, there are things like us. And then they look around and they see the parameters that way. And they don't see the other universes because they're other universes. So, right. so it looks to them like the laws were adjusted, yeah. you know, to make life yeah. possible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, like that thing that you were saying, um, oh, you know, we wouldn't be here if the laws weren't adjusted so that life was possible. So that fits with the multiverse. Uh, if you don't believe in the multiverse, then I think, you know, that doesn't explain anything. Um, it, it, it explains what we're seeing if you do believe in, in the multiverse. Yeah. Okay, got it. Yeah. So that leaves the door of credence open. And that's one of the things I quite like about framing naturalism is that in the sort of popular wisdom, there is this sense that taking a naturalistic or even a scientific approach is, is, can be almost as dogmatic as a supernatural way of thinking in that, you know, we have the evidence, we've done the randomized control trials, you know, here is the answer, we will brook no you know, resistance to that or challenge to that. And that's absolutely the antithesis to my mind of what a naturalistic way of thinking should be. You know, there should always be that humility, that openness to new evidence that, you know, keeping the door open at least a crack to the possibility of, you know, even crazy sounding ideas. So I quite like that idea of, you know, I guess in a, a methodological naturalism that says, well, look, we'll use evidence and reason and believe based on those, 
But that doesn't mean we're 100% sure there is no supernatural. I mean, it's conceivably possible still. Yeah, no. So, I mean, I think you should distinguish naturalism as like a metaphysical worldview from the scientific method, right? Yeah, yeah. There's the methodology and then there's a statement that the natural is all that exists, I guess. There's separate things. And like, um, you know, um, oh, so there could be an intelligent designer. Like, I don't know why. So that's not a naturalistic view, I guess, because the designer would be supernatural or... I mean, I don't even really know what supernatural means, but if you could like change the laws of physics, then I guess that's supernatural. So it's not naturalistic, but I don't think it's unscientific per se. Like there could be evidence for it. We could look at the evidence and try to judge it objectively. And I share that. I I I think I share that hesitation because in a sense, if we ever did find evidence of the supernatural, almost by definition, it's not really supernatural anymore because we found some evidence of it using naturalistic methods. So yeah, I mean, it almost renders the idea of, something supernatural by definition is something we, yeah. could, we could never develop. I mean, it's, you know, it depends on, depends on what you mean by supernatural, but yeah, like, yeah. yeah if you mean like it's beyond uh, any evidence that we couldn't have evidence for it, then yeah, but I, I don't think that's what it means. Um, but like, it's hard to say what it means. Like it means yeah. beyond the natural, greater than the, greater than nature or something like that. I don't know. If there was like, but if there was an intelligent being that had the power to change the laws of nature and it created the physical cosmos that we see, I guess that counts as supernatural. Yeah, maybe. But if it's, I guess, if it's a teenager sitting in their bedroom running a massive server farm and we're the simulation, yeah, yeah. no, that teenager is still part of the natural, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah the natural universe. That's right. And I th- in is, a way, it does almost force you. Yeah. And no, I think it almost does force you back to the sort of really purist religious view of something being you know ineffable and genuinely beyond our capacity to i don't know it's it's difficult but i think you're right you you know you you sort of struggle to understand what even conceptually it might be it is just pushing it back into this sort of pure state of ineffable magic or yeah i mean also like um there could be things that are beyond our understanding that aren't supernatural yeah absolutely absolutely i think I think string theory, you know, is probably beyond my understanding, but it's not, not supernatural. Uh, it's not beyond everyone's understanding, but I don't know, you know, it could even be beyond everyone's understanding, but still be natural. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're just, you know, evolved apes. Um, you know, why, why should we have some rights to be able to understand everything? You know, we're uh, arguably, it's amazing what we've already managed to do with the cognitive kit we've got, but then you know, may well be limits to it. So. Yeah. yeah. So, so would it would it be fair to describe your view, I guess, as a five year old and now as one that is in, in that methodological sense naturalistic, right? You you base your credences and beliefs based on evidence and reasoning rather than you know, something else, reveal belief or um, yeah, I guess. Well, because because I was I was also interested because you know you you've written on this question, you know, topics of direct realism as well. So I'm I'm sort of quite interested in your view about what that means in terms of you know our limited ability to perceive and how that relate relates to actual reality and yeah i mean um gee you know like i try to have justified beliefs right yeah <laughs> like, yeah um I, like i wouldn't call that naturalism <laughs> so you know i believe in a bunch of things that the other people who that the people who call themselves naturalists do not consider to be kosher <laughs> considered to be non-natural so like, uh, I think I'm conscious and I don't think that my consciousness is a physical phenomenon. 
Yeah. So, so there's a non-physical phenomenon and, you know, the, the people who are calling themselves naturalists say that that is not, <laughs> that is not a naturalistic view. And, and they think that that's, you know, crazy, insane, whatever. <laughs> yeah. So besides thinking that I'm conscious, also, I think that some things are right and other things but are this, wrong. And, and maybe this is a distinction between, because, you know, I'm trying to use this naturalist naturalism term in a very broad sense that recognizes you know there's lots of different types of evidence it's not just strictly scientific evidence it can also include our own personal experiences and you know other inputs and that I, I like you said it's not about a confidence in you know naturalistic epistemology only natural things exist it's more just a commitment to a method of you know using evidence and reason to develop it so so in that context i think there's an enormous diversity of opinions amongst people who might use that naturalistic approach because We'll interpret evidence in different ways. We'll reason in different ways. We might even look at different evidence. So, you know, it doesn't it doesn't suggest that everyone has to has to agree. We can still battle pluralistically over all sorts of different interpretations. And I and I'd, I'd even suggest that applies in the physical non physical. So there are, as I understand it, you know, there are people who agree with you, and I've interviewed some of them who say, you know, consciousness is a non physical phenomenon. Who would say that the reason they have credence in that is because of the evidence and reasoning they've done about their experience of consciousness and their observations of consciousness in the wider world. So I still think that can, um, you know, that that's a naturalistic thing, right? I think it's, it's almost this, yeah, well, if you have, if, you, if it isn't a fabricated belief and you can explain how it's based on some evidence and reasoning, and you're willing to have that evidence challenged and willing to reason, then it's still a naturalistic method, I guess. But, you know, like, I wonder if you're defining naturalism in a trivializing way, like in a way yeah, that maybe. trivial. I'm making it so broad that it's <laughs> right because so like oh okay so you should form beliefs based on evidence and reason okay what counts as evidence well basically anything that's a justification in the belief right so it doesn't have to be observation by the five senses anything that counts as justification okay and who would not agree with this yeah. maybe maybe we're only ruling out fideism where you know like you just believe something on it as a pure leap of faith and you're not even claiming yeah. that you have a reason for yeah. it which many do many people do yeah, like I, th I think maybe ordinary people, but it would be hard to find a philosopher. Yeah, I think that's okay. Right. But, but so yeah. what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. and that makes sense. Thank you. And so, so one of the other debates that goes on, and again, I don't want to drag you into it in depth because it'd be good to get onto the moral questions as well. But I'm interested in one of the topics you've written around about around this idea of direct realism because many people are, you know, that's a fascinating space around on the one extreme. Uh, you know, being super confident in the correlation between what we experience in the external world and other people being deeply skeptical of it, you know, to the extent of, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it'd be, yeah, fascinating if you don't mind describing briefly your view on how those things link together. Yeah. So, you know, so my first book, uh, Skepticism and the Veil of Perception, is about direct realism. Yeah. So I defend a direct realist view about our perceptual knowledge. Um, you know, the main problem is that uh, most people, you know, like most people have, you know, a half dozen objections or something to direct realism. And the main problem is that they don't know what direct realism is. <laughs> yeah. They don't, and, you know, they refuse to listen to what the view is before they try to refute it. Yeah, which is so much easier to refute something that you haven't engaged with. Yeah. yeah. Which, by the way, is the main problem with um, my political views and my views on animal ethics, right? The main problem is people refuse to listen. So anyway, um, yeah, like, you know, direct realists do not think that all perceptual experiences are veridical. Like, I don't think there's no such thing as making a mistake or there are no illusions or whatever. Yeah. Um, 
Like they don't think everything is exactly the way it appears. Um, but you know, my my view about the external world is, or my view about everything actually is, you should assume that everything is pretty much the way it seems, unless you have some specific reasons for thinking otherwise. Yeah. And I say specific reasons because I don't count like completely general skeptical claims as reasons for thinking otherwise, right? Yeah. Like, oh, you could be a brain in a vat. So yeah, so that doesn't count. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, you have to have evidence that this perception that you're having at the moment, that there's something wrong with it, right? Something specific to that. If there's no reason for doubting what you're perceiving, then it's rational to just assume that things are the way they seem to be. Yeah, yeah. So this coffee mug, I should have high credence. It does actually exist. Yeah. 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 Makes sense. You know, unless there's something funny, like, you know, if you took some hallucinogens or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you. That's a great summary. Um, so the, the second question we'd like to come on to, again, crazily broad, but is the one of um, ethics and morality. Um, and again, it's interesting to hear my guests talk about how you know, whether it was from five years old onwards, how their journeys shifted here. So for many of my guests, they started out with a supernatural or a religious worldview that came packaged with a bundle of ethics and norms. And for many of them, as they moved to, you know, a more naturalistic way of thinking, um, they had to sort of rebuild their ethics and work out, you know, what good and bad really mean. And um, in the absence of that uh, framework. And um, uh, so there's one question, which is, you know, I guess, what, are, what is good and bad? What is morality? How are ethics grounded if they are? And how have you thought about that through your life? And then the second part of the question is that one of a critical one of moral scope, you know, which entities get to count, um, which again, many people have, you know, changed over time from how they were brought up as a child and, you know, how they think about that now. So yeah, again, two crazily broad questions, but good to get a sense of, you know, um, the yes, basics of, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, yeah. So, I mean, t- to me, it was always kind of bizarre that people thought that you needed religion in order to have ethics. Yeah, like yeah. some 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 religious people think that, I guess. Uh, and I thought that was weird. And I and that actually made me suspect that they didn't understand ethics. That right, because like they were thinking of ethics as um, there's a very powerful boss who's going to kick the shit out of you if you don't obey him. Yeah. <laughs> like, so ethics is obedience and compliance and submission. Yeah. Right, like that's that's my understanding of the divine command theory of ethics. Yeah, like um, you know, it's like the boss is going to mess you up <laughs> if yeah, you don't I do what you want. Um, yeah, and if you think that it's impossible to have an ethics without that, then you don't understand ethics. Um, which you know, maybe may, maybe that most people don't. But anyway, yeah. Okay, well, where does ethics come from? I don't. So I hear that question a lot, and like. First, I don't understand what that means. So um, you're asking me to name a place where ethics started out and like, and then it, it went from that place to here. Like, so it didn't come from anywhere. <laughs> so like they, you know, to me, that question is like, okay, so uh, where did arithmetic come from? All right. The answer to that is not uh, whatever ancient Greece or ancient Egypt or whatever they started. I don't know when they started doing arithmetic right because the question like i mean if the question is where did the um where did the numbers come from right and where did the fact that two plus two was four come from um i don't think this even makes any sense yeah some questions just aren't good questions couldn't come from anywhere okay but maybe the question is yeah yeah but like where did our knowledge come from so okay the answer to that is sort of like well we thought about it 
And then it was obvious. <laughs> like, like where did where did the idea that two is less than three come from? So it came from somebody understanding what two was, understanding the concept of two and understanding the concept three and thinking about it. And then it was obvious that two is less than three. Okay, so, all right, good. Now, what about ethics? Well, like, you know, when you feel some pain, if you felt pain, you just think about it, you're going to notice that it's bad. Yeah. And like, <laughs> you know, so, yeah, my knowledge of that came from experiencing some pain. And when I experienced it, I saw how bad it was. Yeah. And so like, you know, okay, so that's one thing, you know, pain being bad, that's, that's like an important part of ethics. And then I think there's some other things that are good and bad besides pleasure and pain. Like, but basically what happened was, well, I, you know, I encountered some things in the world and sometimes they seem good or they seem bad to me. And, you know, as I say, if you don't have any specific reasons for thinking otherwise, you should assume that things are the way they seem. Yeah. So, right. So like, yeah, you know, I heard about somebody committing a murder and that seemed really bad. And I didn't have any specific reason for thinking that it wasn't bad. So. So you apply that same sort of same approach, that same realist assumption to true to ethics as well. And I like that way of putting it because in a sense, um, you know, it, it can almost be that simple, right? I don't like suffering almost by definition of the word. Um, you know, I'm pretty confident based on my understanding of the fact that you're likely to also experience suffering as a negative thing that you won't like it either. And Nobody morality likes it. Yeah. And morality <laughs> by is definition. And morality is really just or ethics is just the choice to care about that uh, in a, in a, in a way it's almost, almost built into the definitions of the way we frame these words in the same ways, you know, the meanings of two and three almost definitionally explain how one is less than the other. Um, but there's, yeah. but, there, but there is this, some people I think are, are worried about drawing that link from, you know, a sentient being experiencing something positively or negatively as a valence and drawing the link to, you know, ethics and morality. And, and I don't know whether it's the sort of the people overplaying the Hume is or gap or whatever it is. Right. But to me, that gap seems less relevant than many people think, because I think, you know, me experiencing suffering just is a physical is fact about the world. And I'm quite comfortable taking that into the world of ethics without feeling like I've crossed some unjumpable chasm or broken some yeah. rules. Um, yeah. I mean, the, you know, the gap is supposed to be between such and such is painful and such and such is bad. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, okay. You're suffering, but how can you tell that that's bad? Yeah. Who's to say suffering is a bad thing? Well, let me oh. stick a fork in your hand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know, like, and when you say this, it's not just like, uh, you know, like it might come across as, oh, you're just dismissing the issue. <laughs> like, um, and of course the person is going to not like the fork being stuck in their hand, but how does that prove that it's bad? But no, the point is not like to just dismiss it or that the person doesn't like it. The point is when you have that experience, you're going to see the badness of it. And there's no way to communicate the badness of it other than having the experience. Like nobody can understand what the experience of suffering is if they haven't suffered. Mm. Because that's kind of like the nature of, you know, conscious experiences. Um, but if you have experienced it, then you do understand why it's bad. Like, well, you're just like aware of the badness of it. Right? Yeah. yeah. And, like, and is that is is that something that you think was 
you know, you intuitively felt that way since you were four or five in the same way and, you know, and you still do now and now you've written about it and formalized and so on. Or was it something else that shifted over time, do you think? As you Yeah, no, like, I mean, in a way, I think I'm, you know, following like what I thought when I was, a, you know, a small child. <laughs> yeah. um, but I mean, like, so seeing that suffering is bad, like, that's not ethics yet. Like, I think that every conscious being, maybe, I don't know, let's say every human being anyway, can see the badness of suffering. The unethical people are the ones who don't care about anyone else's suffering. Yeah. Like they see that their suffering is bad, but they will not take the step to, oh, other suffering of other beings yeah. also being bad. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think their fundamental ethical insight is to sort of be able to look at somebody else's point of view, right? Yeah. Like you experience the badness from your own point of view, and then you think, oh, so if I did this to someone else, they would also experience something bad. Yeah. And I think this is one of the other, one of the reasons I find it fascinating linking this sort of have we define this sort of naturalistic approach through to the ethics is because it seems to me that once you've gone to, once you've said, look, we're going to take a naturalistic approach to understanding things, we're not going to assume there's a, you know, a deity with a list of rules we just have to, you know, comply with. Almost by definition, morality and ethics is about that decision to have some form of concern for others. I mean, I guess, you know, there are moral systems like egoism or others where you they could say look here my morality involves not caring about others at all but but generally it's quite baked into again the definitions of the words of morality and ethics is it's some form of concern for others um and the choice not to care about others is in a way the choice just to be immoral or amoral yeah um, i mean so yeah. yeah i mean so like there's a debate about whether egoism counts as an ethical yeah. theory right yeah, yeah, I mean, the, the ethical egoist would be upset about this, you know, <laughs> they'd be like, of course, this is a just ethical theory, <laughs> right? And like, they would give a more broad definition of ethics, like, you know, yeah. just like having some views about what you should and shouldn't do. Uh, having views about what you should and shouldn't do that are not just, I should do whatever I want. Like, you know, like, maybe that's the yeah. counts as ethics. I don't know what's going on with the egoist, though, because uh, like, I met people who verbally endorse egoism but they do not act like psychopaths. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, so, the, it's like the solipsist who still goes on a podcast to talk about it with other people that are just yeah. figment, figments of their imagination. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, and you know, like they would give, they would give an account of why they're not going around acting like psychopaths. Yeah. But I think that the account would be rationalizations. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So like what it looks like to me is these people did understand how other people's interests matter but then they got caught in a philosophical theory that told them that they're not supposed to pay attention to that. So then they started rationalizing the forms of behavior that they knew were morally right. They sort of tried to squeeze them into this philosophical theory. Yeah, like, yeah. I think that's what happened. Makes sense. Yeah. So, so, and you've written about ethical intuitionism, which I guess, you know, it's, it feels like it echoes the direct realism thing that you know, if something seems a certain way, you know, probably is and work from there, unless you've got good reasons to disagree. Is that a fair way of, you know, is it a parallel from the epistemology to, into the ethical world and go, well, yeah, suffering's bad, you know, yeah, that, shouldn't, right. be a that I mean, shouldn't be a radical statement. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, when I started, when I first started thinking about um, the nature of ethics and I was thinking about ethical intuitionism, um, it seemed to me like the leading objections to intuitionism are really just global skeptical arguments. Yeah. But with ethics inserted instead of everything, right? But there are arguments that if you just 
if you just apply them, they apply to everything and imply that nobody knows anything, right? So like, um, oh, there's no way of checking on intuition without using other intuitions. Okay, that's true. It's also true that there's no way of checking on the five senses without using the five senses. Yeah. We're like checking the reliability. You can't check on memory without using memory. You can't check on reason without using reason. What else do we have? Yeah. <laughs> um, or, you know, uh, there's uh, the problem of disagreement. It seems like, well, there's a lot of disagreements about a lot of things. Um, you know, there's disagreements about whether God exists. Does that mean that there are no facts about whether God exists? So like, actually, there have been disagreements about all kinds of non-ethical factual things throughout human history. So, you know, like you could come to the conclusion that reality is subjective, right? Like, if you think this means that ethics is subjective, then you should think, oh, reality is subjective, everything, right? So, I mean, like, what, what I really did was I tried to first answer the global skeptical arguments, like in my first book, and yeah. then... I thought, okay, so now, now I can move on to ethics, right? Yeah, makes sense, makes sense. And what, one perspective I think helps with a lot of these challenges is this, if we can move away from this sort of binary approach where we know something or we don't know something or something is right or wrong, and we can go to a more probabilistic approach, you know, whether that's Bayesian or something else, or we can just say, look, we, we are just evolved, imperfect beings doing what we can with limited senses, trying to experience things and trying to work things out. Um, so let's have some humility and and not expect that we're ever going to be perfect you know outside of formal systems we've defined such that they can have perfect answers like two plus two equals four you know outside of that recognize that all of our knowledge is going to be imperfect patchy and therefore it should be provisional probabilistic and where it has an ethical impact you know we should be prudent too right so i think at least plenty of space for pluralism it means that we don't have to abandon you know knowledge or ethics but it also means we don't artificially jump to some so arbitrary binary choice that, um, you know, we then ha have to defend. So I, you know, I quite like that sort of probabilistic approach and having some humility and always being open to revision, both on, you know, both on the ethics front and the epistemology. Yeah. So, you know, in my, in my direct realist view, right. Like, I don't think that you have to hold, I don't think that you should hold your external world beliefs with hundred percent certainty. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that's why I say like, unless you have specific reasons for doubt, yeah. Um, which could happen. Uh, basically, you know, every contingent proposition about the external world has a non-extreme probability, right? Yeah, yeah. Like there's, a, there's a, at least a small probability that it's not true. And, you know, similarly for philosophical claims, you know, like, so I could be wrong about my philosophical views, including my ethical views or whatever. But, um, you know, I'm going to not be obsessed with that unless I have specific reason for thinking that it's wrong. Yeah. Like, you know, like I think some, you know, there's this problem of people being overconfident and underconfident. Yeah. I think like people are overconfident of things that are dubious and controversial. And um, frequently people who study the little philosophy are way underconfident yeah. of things that are not controversial. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, like, oh, um, suffering is bad. Like, Oh, I don't know. Maybe nothing is bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like the skepticism has been turned up to you know some crazy, like, ra crazy ratchet level. And you know, but on the other hand, like, oh, abortion is definitely permissible. <laughs> like, okay, you know, like the abortion issue, you should be really unsure about that because it's really controversial. Yeah. But whether pain and suffering is bad, you should really not, <laughs> you should really not be hesitating that much about that because that is not really controversial. Yeah, 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 makes sense. So the, the second part of this 
um, I guess this moral and ethical question, is this one of moral scope? And if I have any frustration about, you know, my popular understanding of the field of philosophy, it's, it's this one, is that it seems that um, many, many philosophers, brilliant, compassionate, careful thinkers have just sort of skipped past this question of moral scope. And when you read their papers or you listen to them talk, there's an inbuilt, often unstated assumption that only humans really matter. You know, humans are the raw material of our morality. And I, I know you, you don't think this way, and I certainly don't. You know, the clue is in the name of this sentientism idea that we should go broader. Um, but it'd be interesting to know, again, at what stage did you start thinking through questions of moral scope? Again, your five-year-old self may, may have got this one right already too, but it'd be interesting to know your journey through that. And again, where you get to now in terms of, assessing out of all of the entities in the universe you know which ones yeah. matter i mean the the main problem is really people not thinking about issues right so like yeah. the main reason why almost all of ethics has been talking about humans and human interactions it's not that the ethicists thought about it and they decided that only humans matter it's that yeah. they didn't think about it yeah <laughs> i agree yeah they just didn't think about the case of animals um and, you know, that happened to me when I was younger also. Like, okay, so, I mean, it, it was a bit odd because, you know, like uh, after I found out that plants were alive, people told me plants were alive. I'm like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. <laughs> and then I started telling people to stop, like, pulling the leaves off plants. <laughs> um, because, um, you know, how would you like it if the jolly green giant came along and ripped off one of your arms? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, but um, you know, but later, later I realized that well, they're alive. They're alive, but they're not conscious. So the plant doesn't care if you rip off its um, its branches or whatever, and it it doesn't care because there isn't anyone there to care. Yeah, um, there's no anyway, experiencing also, going on. Yeah, um, yeah, and I was also like upset about you know cruelty to animals. But for some reason, I didn't connect it with like what we're eating all the time. Yeah. <laughs> like, like I thought it was like I, you know, heard people would um, go out and like shoot animals for fun. You know, I thought that was wrong. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just like uh, like stepping on snails for fun. Whatever. I thought that was wrong. But then um, I just didn't connect that with the fact that we're constantly eating them. Yeah. Until, Which, of course, like, is where most most of the 7.8 billion humans on the planet today are now so yeah i mean most of them i guess maybe maybe they don't even care about like casual cruelty to animals in front of them yeah um, i don't well i don't know it might depend on what the animal is so like if you see somebody like beating their dog then you're going to see that it's wrong yeah so yeah like you know it took, it took until about when i was in college to start thinking about how well maybe we shouldn't be eating them all the time like Right. And, that, and I didn't know at the time about what the conditions were in the factory farms, you know, like when I discovered how those were basically constant cruelty, it was like, well, it's really hard to see how there's any way of defending this, right? Like we're going to be inflicting this amount of suffering, which is like orders of magnitude larger than the enjoyment that we're getting. Like, uh, yeah, like, you know, there's an ethical question about whether you can inflict suffering on someone in order to get greater pleasure for yourself. But can yeah. you inflict suffering on someone to get a tiny little fraction of the amount of pleasure for yourself? 
like that doesn't seem <laughs> doesn't seem like there's a hard issue there actually yeah the answer yeah. is obviously no yeah this is not really complicated ethics is it um and and how how difficult was that transition for you because one of the weird things in many of these conversations is you know the technical details or the ethical questions are actually pretty simple and straightforward um but often the social challenges and the habits you know make that a difficult journey and for me it was you know took, took embarrassingly long you know that distinction between intellectually having thought it through and actually practically having made changes in my life to try and imperfectly reflect that was um you know painfully long journey was it did the light go on for you and you're like right that's it or did it take some time to work through was it uh i mean it took some time from when i first started thinking about it mm. you know to decide that i needed to be vegetarian and then it took like a surprisingly long time after that to decide that well, i should also give up dairy yeah same <laughs> with me i mean for me that was two decades you know yeah. so i went i went vegetarian in like early mid-20s and i've been vegan for you know, i guess four or five years now so yeah yeah and i guess you know like um it, i guess it was just like oh veganism that just seems like such an extreme position yeah. and yeah. like everybody else around me is a meat eater so like everyone else around me was challenging why i wasn't eating meat no one was challenging why i was still drinking milk yeah <laughs> like yeah so, and it, felt, it felt very similar to me it was almost like, almost as at that point in time you know vegetarianism felt weird but not super weird whereas veganism felt really weird so it was almost uh, looking back it's embarrassing but it was i was almost calibrating social acceptability and that that was the point i was willing to go to is um strange balance and obviously yeah. things you know things are shifting all the time now you know vegans are the coolest people on the planet and we're you know leading the way forward and will soon be the global default so you know now it's now it's just unlimited kudos and <laughs> and social acceptability on all fronts <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we're we're just the dominant group in society now. But yeah, uh, we just need others um, to realize it. <laughs> no, I mean, what's actually going to happen is uh, they're going to develop synthetic meat, and then after that happens, it's going to become you know uh, over some amount of time, I don't know, it's going to become cheaper yeah. than traditional, you know, animal-based meat, and it might become more nutritious because you can engineer it, and it might become better tasting. <laughs> Or, you know, they'll just be like, it'll just be easier to get exactly what people want. Yeah. Whatever it is, whether they want, you know, less saturated fat or more. <laughs> um, and then, and then when that happens, then people will shift over to eating synthetic meat. Yeah. And then after almost everyone has already shifted for self-interested reasons, then they're going to admit that it was always wrong <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to, to eat the animals. And, and, but, you know, that generation will have grown up with the synthetic meat generation yeah. that finally admits that it was wrong they'll be like god what the fuck was wrong with our parents and our grandparents yeah i can see it happening now and it's and we'll come back to this when we talk about you know the future and how change is going to happen but there's some there's fascinating work been done by the sentience institute whose primary goal is to you know encourage moral scope expansion in theory and in practice in the human species but they've done some work looking back at previous social changes and you know that was one of the lessons they learned right the reason we stopped using oil blubber for lamps wasn't because people cared about whales. It was because kerosene came along and it was cheaper, faster, easier, you know. And, and once we'd done that, then people looked back and said, wasn't it terrible what we were doing to all the whales? So um, yeah, I think I think you may well be right. That's that's the way we're gonna have to drive a bulk of the change. But it would be it'd be good to come back to that in a bit because I did want to finish off this this question about moral scope, because I think you and I probably share that view. You talk about, you know, entities that are conscious. 
and I tend to focus on um, sentience, partly because it's just got sl- consciousnessism has got just even more syllables than sentientism. But <laughs> right. so that's one reason. But I think it's also because sometimes people layer in more stuff into consciousness, so they might layer in, you know, ability to plan for the future or creativity, or again in this sort of self-serving way of just trying to zero back in on human capabilities. Whereas my again amateur interpretation of sentience is it's a it's the more morally salient bit of consciousness, if you like, it is that capacity to have experiences and to have valenced experiences and to suffer and to flourish. But either way, I think for me, that's the appropriate basis for moral inclusion is any being that we have a reasonable understanding is likely to be sentient gets to count morally. And that's the, I guess, the starting point. But there there are people who will challenge that view from a more restricted perspective. You know, they'll go more anthropocentric and say, look, no, humans, humans matter and others don't. I think you and I would both disagree with that. But there are people who go the other way as well. And I think the first time the term sentientism was used in the literature was by John Rodman, who was, a, I think, a, either a biocentrist or an ecocentrist. And he was criticising Ryder and the Godloviches and Singer and others and saying, look, this sentientism idea is just another form of discrimination because you're discriminating against you know, all the non-sentient stuff, those poor plants having their leaves ripped off and the rocks and the rivers and the trees and the ecosystems as well. Um, what... How, would, how do you respond to a sort of ecocentrist or a biocentrist approach that says, look, we need to go beyond sentience or consciousness? Yeah, I mean, there might be a clash of intuitions there. Um, mm. I mean, so it's, you know, it seems to me like, um, like they're sort of imagining that the plant has a point of view um, and it, do- it doesn't have any point of view yeah, because it doesn't have a mind. Like it's just a physical process. Yeah. Where, so like, I mean, I don't see what the difference is, you know, between the plant and like um, a mountain or something. Um, And they'd be like, okay, well, the plant is a living thing. Okay. And, but I just sort of like, don't see, right. So, okay. We can like analyze what that means. Okay. But it's basically just some complicated chemical processes, which like, um, you know, like it's, capable of self-replication and metabolism. And like you, you could describe the characteristics that are required. So like yeah. takes in energy from the environment and like, you know, so it metabolizes, like takes stuff from the environment and turns it into parts of itself. And like, and then it reproduces and it's got like, it reproduces using DNA. And so you could say some stuff that are like maybe defining characteristics of life. And I don't see why any of those things is in, intrinsically valuable. Uh, like I'm just not seeing, you know. No, and I and I I share that view as well because I, so I draw a fairly hard line around sentience. You know, I I think we can of course have an instrumental concern for the environment, and ecosystems, and other things because of their importance to the sentient beings, but not in their own right. And my my primary challenge, you know, in a way I don't mind if people want to go beyond, but the the thing I find deeply frustrating is that most people today go beyond. You know, they care about rocks and rivers and trees and ecosystems and. Gaia and, um, and so on, while still carving out vast tranches of very obviously sentient beings from their moral consideration. And, you know, that just makes my brain explode. You know, they're, they're pretending to have a super generous moral scope that includes everything, but at the same time, yeah. you know, in a way, it's yeah, just I mean, a veneer guess, over an anthropocentric view. Yeah. You know, other thing I wanted to say was like, well, how would we define what counts as being in the interests or against the interests of a non sentient yeah. being? So like normally if something happens to you, um, we like, 
it partly depends upon your preferences, whether it's good or bad. Yeah. Right. So like you could have a part of your body removed and we could judge it to be good. Like if it made you happy and didn't frustrate any of your preferences and didn't frustrate anyone else's preferences or anything like that. Like you, if you put in enough stuff about how nobody was unhappy and everyone's desires were better satisfied or whatever, then it, it's good. And, you know, it would be bad if like some desires were frustrated or somebody suffered or something like that. And then if you're just talking about insentient nature, like plants, then there's, there's no criteria, right? Yeah. yeah. Because there are no preferences and there's no suffering or enjoyment. Yeah. Right? So, like it's not, it's not the case that just interfering with any biological functioning is bad. So like, you know, I cut my fingernails and like I'm removing parts of my body and like killing some cells and nobody thinks that that's bad. Uh, and the, the reason why has reference to our mental states. Yeah. Right. So like, you know, removing plants, removing like leaves from the plant. I don't know how we would judge whether that's good or bad if there are no preferences that are relevant. Yeah, yeah it makes sense. And I think you can almost flip it the other way around. You can say, fine, you can grant moral consideration to that plant. You could even give it rights if you like, but none of the rights you might think of granting it are relevant to its interests or preferences. So again, it just renders the whole question, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah so, like rights are, rights are tied to preferences, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, so if but, you don't, yeah, if, if, you don't, right, if, if you can't suffer, then why do you need a right not to be made to suffer? Or yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so like you know, if I have a right over my computer, what that means is you can't use it unless I let you, or something like that. So, like if I don't want you to use the computer, you can't use it. Yeah, right. But if I express that it's okay with me, then you can use it. Okay, so like if the plant has rights, then what does that mean? <laughs> like you can't do the stuff against the plant's wishes. But it doesn't yeah. have any wishes. So yeah. what's going on? Like <laughs> end of, what, end what of conversation is violating or not violating the right. Yeah, no, I agree. It's, it seems strange. So, um, so <laughs> one area where you know this this worldview I'm trying to put forward of sentientism is actually neutral is what actually is sentience or consciousness. And I think this is an area where you and I might might personally differ because you've mentioned already you think consciousness is something non-physical, and w- whereas I tend to again in a completely amateurish way tend to just think it just is this class of information processing we happen to have evolved to be running. So I think it, I don't think there is anything beyond the physical in our consciousness. And again, in a sense, I don't think it matters ethically that much because you and I would probably agree that whatever it is, it matters morally. And I've, I've interviewed some people who take a more materialist approach, um, you know, an illusionist approach, but I've also interviewed people who've taken a panpsychist approach of various varieties, some of whom say that um, you know, it is a different property in a materialist sense, and others you say it is something beyond the material. So there's all sorts of different ways we could go there. But yeah, it'd be interesting to know your sort of a quick summary of what your sense of what sentience and consciousness actually is. Um, yeah. Well, that's a bit of a tangent from the main theme of the conversations, but yeah, yeah, like you know, I can say stuff about what it isn't. Yeah. You know, like as far as explaining what it is, I think you just have to experience it. Um, you know, I was just looking at Thomas Nagel's um, article, What Is It Like to Be a Bat? Yeah. And, you know, if, if anyone hasn't read it, it's, uh, it's very interesting and very um, insightful. But, you know, so like the way, way that Nagel describes it is, um, you know, to be conscious means there's something that it is like to be you. So there's nothing that it's like to be a tree, but there's something that it's like to be a bat. <laughs> and the reason he picked the example of bats is that you know, it is hard 
it's maybe impossible to know what it's like to be a bat, but we don't have like we don't have any doubt that there is something, right? Yeah, because because they um, perceive things through echolocation. So, you know, is that is that experience like seeing things in black and white, or is it more like hearing? Like somehow you're hearing the locations of objects. <laughs> anyway, so we don't know what it's like, but there is something that it's like, right? Yeah. There's some qualitative character of that experience. Anyway, that's that's what it is. That's what consciousness is. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, I like I don't think that that's a physical phenomenon. And Nagel also explains why it's hard to understand how this could be physical. Like, um, you know, when so the analogies that people used to give and may, I guess still give, like people give analogies, like, well, it turns out that heat is. Um, you know, the kinetic energy of these rapidly vibrating molecules in the substance. Um, okay, and then, you know, the first thing you should think is, well, that doesn't really explain how heat feels, right? And then the second thing you should think is, yes, but that doesn't matter because how heat feels isn't actually in the object, right? So the part that's not explained is just an effect that the physical phenomenon has on human observers. Mm. And so that's why you don't have to explain that when you're doing this reduction, when you're explaining the nature of heat. Okay. And similarly for colors, like, oh, well, you're not, you know, there's this wavelength of light, but that doesn't explain why it looks this way. But then you say, we, won't, we don't have to explain that because that's just like an qualitative experience in the human observer. So the external physical phenomenon causes this. Okay, and we're just talking about the external property. But then when you're talking about consciousness itself, you can't say that. You can't say the phenomenon, oh, it's just an effect on the minds of human observers. Because the effect on the minds of human observers is the thing that you're yeah. talking about. Yeah, yeah. And why does that have to be a non-physical thing in your way of thinking? Because I think I'd follow you all the way through that and still say the subjective experience is just the pattern of information processing that's going on in the neurons in my mind. And well, I'm, I mean, I'm not sure why that like, drives you to conclude it must be non-physical, but I mean, um, I don't like what Nagel is saying. And, you know, what I'm saying, I don't understand how this can be physical. Yeah. Right. In a way that I, I think I do understand all the other cases where we figured out the underlying nature of some phenomenon that wasn't obvious. Right. So because the story that you give about how it could turn out that heat is really molecular kinetic energy, um, no story at all like that can be given when you explain how it turns out that consciousness is really brain processes. Right. So I, and so you should at least you should at least initially see that there's something weird about this. Like, um, you know, you think about what it looks like when you see something blue mm. and then somebody says, yeah, in that the what it look, looks like, that is a chemical reaction. And like on the face of it, that's totally a bizarre statement. It doesn't seem anything like a physical phenomenon. Okay, and then add to that the fact that you cannot explain this away in the same way that you would explain away the, like, you know, the weirdness in all other previous cases, right, where we reduce something to something else. I wonder if, I wonder if one day we'll manage to develop a you know, sufficiently advanced technology that can emulate you know, what it's like to experience being a bat or to being a Mike Humor. And um, maybe that will cut through it and we'll go, <laughs> there's a switch yeah. I can flick where I really will know what it's like to be, to be you. But uh, we'll yeah, see. I mean, but it's a fascinating well, space. Yeah, I don't have 
yeah, fully developed. It might, it might require like, you know, doing surgery on my brain to implant a bat-like part of the <laughs> yeah, brain yeah, into yeah. mine and then I could have the experience. Yeah. Yeah. I also, I'm, one of the other things that I find fascinating is that it does seem that the plasticity of our own minds is pretty incredible when it comes to sensory input. So I'm also pretty confident that if you, you know, plugged in an echolocation capacity, you know, some sort of sonar into our minds that we could actually develop the capacity to use that. You know, people have done that when they've been deprived of one particular sense, they've been able to use another to, you know, yeah. recreate it. The power to do that is pretty amazing. Right, I'm not yeah. sure that has bearing. No, but the, but the yeah, one is. There's a phenomenon where like some, um, some blind people apparently navigate by echolocation. Yeah. Using clicks and yeah. Yeah. So So maybe they're, you know, they're at least half the way to understanding what it might be like to be a bat. We can finally work it out. So, um, and the other interesting link, because it's, it almost your answer to a previous question about, you know, why doesn't the plant experience sentience or consciousness, whereas a pig or a cow or a chicken or you or I do was that, in a plant, it's just a mechanical, physical process. And in a way, that distinction becomes harder for me. Right? If I want to insist that consciousness is just a class of information processing, then there's a question that says, well, if it's just a class of information processing, why isn't the communication between trees and the fungal network? And you know, why isn't that conscious? Now, I, I still think that there's a really strong rationale for that because i don't think all information processing is conscious like some panpsychists would do right even the electron buzzing around the atom in some sense in their way of thinking is minimally conscious i don't agree with that i think it's there's an evolutionary rationale for while why mobile animals and maybe in the pre-cambrian developed the capacity to model themselves and others in the environment and to feel some sort of valence that took them towards good stuff and bad stuff so i think there's a there's a sort of evolutionary rationale that helps us distinguish between you know, simply speaking, you know, most animals and plants. Um, but there's also the types of information processing that are going on. So when we look at the analogy, uh, you know, fMRI scans or neuroanatomy in a human, when we're experiencing things, um, those capabilities just aren't present in plants. You know, the ability for plant cells to, they just yeah. don't communicate in the same way. So I think there's a bunch of different reasons. But in a sense, that's that gives me a different way of answering that same question about where's the fuzzy boundary of, sentience because i'm i say yeah it is all information processing all the way down but there's only a class of it which is sentience whereas you almost have you almost have a harder line to draw where you're saying no there's this non-physical property that is present in animals that just is not a characteristic of plants or that's right yeah present in some animals right animals that have at least only the ones that have a central nervous system and maybe only of a certain degree of sophistication but i mean like you know your view is a little weird to me because it's like (laughs) Okay, yeah, so only some kinds of information processing count as consciousness. Okay, but like, why are some kinds of information processing intrinsically valuable and other kinds aren't? And this yeah. is kind of weird. Yeah, and I think it is because it feels like something to run those types of information processing. So in, so in the same way as, you know, yeah. so, so I think we come back to the same point, right? It's, it's, this, it's, it's, it's an entity feeling of valence that matters. And whether that's because it's a non-physical property that just happens to be, you know, correlated with these types of entities, or whether it's actually just a subclass of information processing that only runs in these entities, I still think we end up at the same place that that, you know, some sort of entity experiencing a valence. Yeah. The problem is like when when you have this um, reductionist theory, like you should think that the purely physical characterization or 
functional characterization or whatever, that that's the fundamental characterization. So like all this stuff about, oh, it feels a certain way, like that's not fundamental, right? And that the real meaning of that is explained by saying this stuff about information processing. So you should be able to see the goodness or the badness by just talking about the information and not having to use these, you know, um, superficial concepts about feelings and desires and whatever. Yeah. Right? I mean, and I guess I don't necessarily see it that way. I still think that I don't see why you have to go back to the fundamental to find the thing that's morally important that we're talking about. Cause you, you're going back into, you know, quarks and subatomic physics and so on. And, and I, I'm not sure why we'd expect to see that stuff there. I think it's still appropriate to hook our ethics and morality at a, a different level even if we're saying there isn't a separate thing, you know, it is all quarks and electrical firings and so on all the way down. I still think we can hook things. So in the same way as, you know, not all information processing is PowerPoint, you know, and if I was to describe PowerPoint to you, the wonder that is PowerPoint, you know, I wouldn't have to go back to every single line of code or bit or digit, right? That wouldn't be a meaningful thing to hook my description of the application on. Um, I think, you know, it's silly to draw the analogy really, but, um, uh, but in a sense, I think that consciousness and sentience is, you know, a type of information processing that because it generates in the entity that's running it, this sense of valence, that's why it's important. Even if you can't necessarily see that valence in the detailed stuff oh, in the same right. way as you couldn't see snap to grid or, you know, a line group in, you know, the, the bits and the digits running the computer. I'm not sure why it has yeah. to be in the, in the lowest possible level. But. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, your, your example about explaining PowerPoint to someone <laughs> you know, by talking about quarks. Well, I mean, that's really a problem. That would be a practical problem. Like the problem is like your explanation would be too complicated. Yeah. But the problem isn't that it wouldn't be right. Like, you know, and if you could grasp this really complicated explanation, then you would see why, you know, whatever, why the program would be doing what it's doing. Um, I mean, what, you know, my, like, what I think is going on is that you really sort of like, um, sort of illicitly relying on the into the dualistic intuitions. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And like, that's why you can't eliminate the talk about the feeling of the, the positive and negative valence. Like if you eliminate that, then you don't get the ethical intuitions. Yeah. And that's because you're relying on our in, intuitive understanding of these, which is a dualistic, you know, well, yeah, we think that it's not just moving around a bunch of bits of information. Yeah. So you think I'm trying to take a monist approach, but I'm relying on dualist interpretations to sort of carve out sentience is something special and and ethically valuable well i will have to keep thinking about it like i say i'm an amateur but but i think what we can agree on is whatever sentience is it you know it matters so uh, yeah but no that was fascinating thank you so so the the final question that we come on to is how do we think about the future and this is where we might get into you know changing social norms you talked about clean meat and you know freeing people up to have better ethics we might talk about political systems when again you've written a lot on political philosophy and so on too and maybe one way of linking them together is you've written about libertarianism and anarchism and um in a sense there's there's a potential competitive core value to this idea of sentience and you know suffering and flourishing which is i guess liberty and autonomy and um how do you how do you see those two concepts relate do you see liberty as being equally foundational to experiences um, or operating at a different level? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I don't, so like, I don't have like a kind of overarching theory that explains all the truths of ethics. What I have is intuitions about yeah. 
um, situations. So like, you know, if you think about forcing other people to do what you want in most circumstances, it just seems like the wrong thing to do. You just shouldn't do that to people. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then, you know, and then I apply that to uh, government agents, right? So like, um, you know, uh, you've got some money and I think that I could spend the money better than you can. So I'm just going to come and like threaten you with violence uh, to make you give me the money and then yeah. I'm going to spend it better. Like, that seems wrong. And then, um, you know, then I noticed that that's what the government is doing. They're doing that all the time. Yeah. And so I'm like, okay, so that seems wrong too, unless somebody can explain a reason why it would be okay. Right. In, in their case. And, you know, it turns out that nobody can give a credible explanation, right? Like people give explanations, but then when you examine them, they, they don't make much sense. Yeah. And, and, and I guess there's, there's of course challenges where those intuitions conflict, but so, so the stereo, you know, there's a stereotypical libertarian view, which says, you know, freedom is more important than even suffering, flourishing and death itself. Um, and, and some people will try and take that view uh, such that, you know, their own liberty in particular should be defended even when they're using that liberty to cause needless harm to others as well. And again, I don't want to, because you've written entire books on this, but when those different intuitions of, you know, suffering and flourishing and well-being and liberty and autonomy clash together, do you have a sense of how those can get resolved? Yeah. I mean, you know, you know about the traditional saying that like your freedom to swing your fist uh, stops where my nose begins. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, so like, you know, if you're just harming yourself, then there's an, there's a plausible argument to be made that people should leave you alone, like prioritize your liberty yeah. over yeah. your welfare. But if you're harming other people, like then it no longer seems right that your liberty is more important, right? Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. And, and and when we bundle all of that together, what, how does that leave you thinking about the future? Because in a sense, you know, we we would disagree on certain things, but I think broadly we like to try and believe things based on engaging honestly with the reality rather than making stuff up. We have this shared sense of which seems ridiculous, but you know, seems right. there are billions of people out there that disagree with us on that. Um, and um, and on the on the on the morality topic, we recognise there's moral salience in you know every conscious being every sentient being as well but most people on the planet disagree with this on both or at least either of those ways of thinking um so in that context what how do you think about how can we you know how whether change will happen how we can drive change forward whether it's political yeah. systems social norms you know how, how yeah. can we uh... yeah um you know i mean like so you know, i think of two areas where we want change like we want we want to change the government. We want it to improve, but we haven't talked about that in this conversation, but the government is, you know, doing a lot of messed up stuff. Yeah. And then the other area is like, we want our treatment of non-human animals to change. My plan is, you know, I, I just like give philosophical arguments and then some people get persuaded by them. Now, I don't know if this is a good plan or not. Um, I think this only works on people who are intellectually... And, and vast tens of people listening to this podcast and YouTube will be yeah. immediately persuaded and go out and do better things in the world. That's right, yeah. With my you massive know, audience. <laughs> yeah, dozens more have listened to me on other podcasts. Yeah, yeah. My, visit my website every day. The ripples will um, spread out, yeah. So, yeah, I do that. But, like, the, the, um, the majority of people 
um, are sort of like not intellectually oriented, like they're, they're not going to be listening to philosophy podcasts or reading philosophy books or whatever. Yeah. Um, and how are they going to change? Well, what's going to happen basically is that the elites are going to lead them. And so, like I suggested earlier in this conversation, like the way that we're going to um, stop the animal agriculture is by having alternatives that are cheaper and better. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, like give people what they want. Okay. But, and so you might think, oh, so then like philosophy is really irrelevant, right? Because like, morality is irrelevant. People are not going to be morally motivated. Well, the majority of people are not especially morally motivated. They are more motivated by social pressure. Yeah. But I think what basically happens is like there are certain elites in society who are kind of like leading and they kind of, um, they, the elites have a big influence on what is considered socially acceptable. So like they, they sort of transmit social pressure down. Yeah. Shift the window. Also, right? yeah. And it's also like the reason why people are developing synthetic meat in the first place is it's like mainly prompted by ethical concerns, yeah. which were started by these, you know, philosophers. Uh, and so, yeah, so like, that's my that's plan. very right. real influence. Yes. Yeah. Philosophy still yeah. matters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's my thought about how society will change. Yeah, makes sense. And did, did you want to mention briefly your thoughts about government um, and what needs to be done there? Again, it's a bit of a tangent to the main thread of the conversation, yeah. but one of the things I found fascinating about this, you know, trying to frame this sentientist idea is, is, a, is a very simple pluralistic platform, is the sheer variety of political views that seem to fit in. There are so many different ways people think they can make the world better for all sentient beings. So, yeah, it'd be interesting yeah, to hear yeah. your perspective on the political philosophy side. Yeah, so, you know, I've, I have a book called The Problem of Political Authority, which is basically about why nobody has political authority. No, no government really has authority. Um, and, you know, like my, my idea about um, how we're going to promote this view is um, more people need to read my book. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, I mean, it, and it's not just me, like the discussion in political philosophy, like there's discussion of whether we really have an obligation to obey the law. And it looks to me like it's becoming sort of like the orthodox position that, that we don't. Yeah. We don't have an obligation to obey the law merely as such, right? Just not merely because it's the law. Um, and then my thought is like, maybe, you know, this idea will, will um, spread out from the philosophy world uh, into the wider world. Uh, and, you know, like, why, why is this good? Well, because like the idea that, there's a special group of people who have this special kind of authority over everyone else. This leads to letting them get away with all kinds of bullshit that nobody else can get away with. Yeah. You know, like, like an example is, um, you know, like the um, prosecutors prosecuting innocent people. Okay. And, and I don't mean by mistake, like there are cases where they do this, where the prosecutor clearly has exculpatory evidence and they hide it so that they can win the case. And then somebody goes to jail for years and then nothing happens to the prosecutor, right? Or like maybe he gets reprimanded by the judge. Yeah. Right? And like the most that would ever happen is that they would be fired, right? Like disbarred so they can't work as a lawyer anymore, but they never go to jail. And if I cause somebody to be wrongfully imprisoned for many years, I am going to jail. Like, no, I'm not just going to get fired yeah. and banned from being a professor. I'm going to jail. And plus, they could sue me for, like, you know, all my money. 
and you can't sue the prosecutor for any misconduct, no matter how bad it is. Yeah, yeah. And all of this is just like, because the government sets itself up as being above everyone else. We get to do whatever we want, you know, and like, just because we said so. I guess there's a couple, at least a couple of amateur challenges. One is, you know, the, the, I guess the idea behind a lot of government authority, one way people will push back is saying, well, you know, without the government on authority, which is supposed to be there to protect in part people with less power, if we strip that back, isn't it just a free for all that gives enormous influence to those who have money and guns and, you know, an unrestrained context. And, and I guess there's another challenge, which is, you know, if you imagine we did strip back all of this authority and we go back to a much more sort of organic approach, is there a, is there a risk that once you let that run, in a few decades time, we will basically just rebuild exactly what we've got today. You know, we, and you go, oh, this looks, this looks familiar it, as a method that we've used to organically develop these sort of pseudo flawed democracies in the capitalist system. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, so like in order, well, you know, you have to read my book. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> like, it, like it discusses, discusses in detail, um, yeah. you know, all the issues, but um, and like part, part of the answer to that last question is, well, a lot more people would have to understand the theory of anarchism and agree with it, you know, before it would yeah. work. So like we have to prepare the ground by sort of like, you know, spreading the idea. Um, because right now what would happen if we didn't have a government is that um, people would immediately try to set one up. And, I, and, and it wouldn't be hard because like 99% of people would agree. <laughs> yeah, everyone's used to that, yeah. Um, Okay, but um, like, so just on a very abstract theoretical level, so we're thinking, okay, well, so first I wanna distinguish power from authority, right? So yeah. power is a descriptive concept and no one doubts that the state has power. Authority is a moral concept. Yeah, It's like the right to rule over other people or something like that. Got it. And yeah. you know, yeah, and like to make other people obey you. Um, so nobody, there is no authority. So I'm not saying we should get rid of authority because it has never existed. So you can't get rid of something that doesn't even exist. Yeah. But we, okay. But I do think that we should reduce the concentration of power. Yeah. Okay. And then, you know, one thought is, um, oh, but we need the government to like protect the powerless. Okay, wait, wait, wait. So you're saying like, we need to have this huge concentration of power and like that is going to protect people without power. Why is that going to happen? Yeah. Won't they just use the power for themselves? Oh, okay. you, you misunderstand. Then, we just elect the good guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, like if, if we could easily tell who was good and who was bad, then yeah, yeah good work. Yeah. Um, we have a mixed, okay, but then a mixed you think, history of doing that. But then you think like, oh, but there's no other alternative. Like, like right? Like if there's not a government, then there's still going to be like some people who are more powerful than others. And then they're just going to just going to take advantage of everyone else, right? So what's the alternative? But the the alternative theoretically is um, competition, right? So like what we have now is um, monopolistic concentration of power. Yeah. And then the, the uh, false image that people have of anarchism is that anarchists think that it should just be like, you know, no one, no one is policing anyone. Yeah. It's like the purge just, all the time. Everyone, <laughs> everyone just does whatever they want at any time. Yeah. Okay. And like neither of those is very good, but what we could have is, um, so to speak, multiple centers of power that are in competition with each other. And so like, right, so like what, what anarchists, or at least what the capitalist anarchists actually think 
is that we should have multiple protectors, not a single protector. Yeah. And the and the rationale behind this is well, it's competition with the other protection agencies that keeps you in line. Yeah. And yeah. stops you from abusing the people. Yeah. Thank you. Well, like you say, I should read your book. So uh, I've, I've, everyone should I've, immediately buy it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and the seven others. I've, I always feel embarrassed asking professional philosophers such basic questions. I can almost feel them sighing and going, <laughs> read the book. But it's, no, it's brilliant to um, uh, hear at least the sort of top level summary of your thinking. Um, and it's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you because, like I say, I, I think you're one of those rare philosophers that just keeps hitting these really deep, important questions head on. You know, what's real, what matters, and how can we make the world better? Um, yeah, so thank you so much for doing that. And like right. I say, I hope yes. everyone goes and reads your eight books. Yeah. Yes. And thanks for having me. It's been fun. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. So what's the best way people following you, finding your books? Like I said, I'll include all the links, but where would you, where's the main place you'd point people? Is it the, um, uh, yeah. your fake news blogs that the good stuff? Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. I have a, I have a blog, fake news.net, F-A-K-E-N-O-U-S.net. Uh, I have a, you know, I have a personal website, owl232.net. And, um, you know, you can like look at my Amazon page to find my books. Yeah, that's brilliant. Thank you. Well, it's been such a pleasure. I'll let you get on with your day now, Mike. Um, thank you again. All right. Great talking to you. Yeah. Take care. Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalize rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more. And you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?